Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is season four, episode two, and today we are going to be talking about Crush from 2022. Came out all of, for us, like three weeks ago. As always, my name is Zachary Oritz. I am one of your co-hosts, and I am joined this week, just like each week preceding this week, by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey, Maddie, you are on summer vacation now. Yes, today is my first full day of summer vacation, so I've been enjoying the life of, you know, freedom and summer and sleeping in, all of these things. It's wonderful. It's great. Yeah, that's that's really, really awesome. And just as a little plug for Stream It, you know, if you want to go watch a summer vacation movie and listen to our podcast about it, I think it was, what, episode three we did on a goofy movie? A Yes gif and video that matt tweets and sends to me every year at around this time so. <laughs> for sure it's a we sat and watched uh, a goofy movie the other night because uh, summer vacation doesn't start until till max and goofy get on stage for the for the finale so yeah it's very exciting all right so let's talk a little bit about crush this is a brand new movie so we don't have a ton of history with it but what what did you have coming into this matt um, the only thing is that I saw, I, I think that you had shared the, the trailer with me, uh, originally, and I saw that it was coming out, and just as soon as I saw the trailer, I thought, oh, I definitely want to watch that, and so I watched it on the weekend it came out, I can't remember if it was the first day or the second day, but I did watch it the weekend that it came out, and I was very excited to watch it, and then... I thought, you know, our timing worked out really well for the show to discuss it when it came when it came out. Otherwise, I don't have really anything else. I just enjoyed the trailer a lot. Yeah, I so I sent you the trailer because I saw someone tweeted it and honestly, I should have checked our chat logs to see who it was. I think it was the director or um one of the one of the actresses had tweeted it. And I didn't watch the trailer, but I knew that we were coming up on our Hulu season and saw that it was a queer rom-com that was a Hulu original. And so I sent it to you and knew that there was a possibility of us covering it for the show. So, but yeah, I, that was all I knew about it. All I knew was it came out this year and it was a lesbian queer rom-com. So that, that, that was all all that I brought into it, which does bring us a little bit into our reasoning for picking this movie. This is something we'd been doing a little earlier or a little later in the show in our past episodes, but it hasn't really felt right. So we're going to try moving it here. And one of the things that we wanted to do as we were exploring different streaming services is look at some of their original content. It's one of the exciting and new things that is starting to happen for movies you know it's there we talked a little bit with Garrett on our on the bonus episode for the lighthouse about how the movie industry has changed and there's been a little bit of hand-wringing about the lack of ability for movies to be able to make it into theaters for wide release because they're getting shoved out by you know the Disney behemoths the huge IP the Marvel shows or the Fast and the Furious or what have you. 
or whatever, Pixar or the Disney animated features. But the flip side of that is that there are all of these movies that have some amount of studio backing that you can just watch in your house. And it's a lot easier. I think it like, on the one hand, it sort of feels like a direct to video model, but the quality feels a lot different to me. And also there's just a difference between having to see the movie when it airs on TV or set your VCR and having it on demand to watch with your family whenever you want to. Yeah, it's a it's a weird thing that I've been noticing over the past, especially especially like five or six years, that you've had this huge boom in these streaming services purchasing films, indie films, and then giving them a platform to distribute it. And it's really difficult for you know the the studio model the or the the movie model with the studios right now the the way they push out indie films from being able to find show times in theaters there's there's so much crunch around the the theater showings but at the same time you see this huge proliferation of the indie films so it it's a weird sort of like really bad time for indie films in the movie theater they're shown a lot mm-hmm. less often but kind of a golden age for the actual distribution and viewing of indie films i think that people are seeing these films a lot more often than they would in previous models even though they aren't seeing them in the theater as often and you can just even go look and see when a movie like this on hulu comes out and you see on social media and there are just thousands and thousands of people that are on watching it talking about it and there's entire communities that form around all of these indie movies um i've watched a lot of just weird indie stuff that's come out on different streaming services in the past three or four years i try to watch a, a lot of different things and even the weirdest you know, most niche films that I see, I go and look on social media and there is a little community forming around to discuss that thing. And that really wasn't something possible 10 years ago even. Yeah, and I don't know, one of the other things that I see happening and I don't know exactly how accurate it is. I assume it's pretty accurate. I assume they're not really juking the stats. I don't know if that's naive of me, but I I use both real good and just watch uh, two different apps that (laughs) are sort of a necessity if you're trying to find different things to watch and try and spend as little money as possible these are apps that you know you can plug a movie in and then it'll tell you what streaming services that movie is on and whether or not you know it's included in the subscription or whether it's additional money to rent and both of those apps also have a filter for popular or a sort by popular and so my assumption is is that that's really just saying the stuff that people are either tagging as they've watched or stuff that they've tagged as want to watch are going to show up further higher up on that list and with a lot of regularity even the movies that don't really seem to get view get particularly get reviewed particularly well do seem to climb up that list so what was the netflix one that just came out red notice yeah red notice yeah Yeah. i i don't know that i heard very many if any good things about that movie but it was at the top of all of those lists and not just the netflix list not just 
you know, Netflix trying to push their own movie. So I think they are finding an audience. There is going to be there is going to be a weird stratification that's going to start to happen or we're in probably a new world now where there's going to be a pretty big difference between stuff that gets at least a limited release and stuff that is released only on streaming. And that's because the Oscars just changed their rule where if you want to be considered for Oscars, you have to have a theatrical release. So, any of these streaming platforms that want their movies to be considered. And at first I was like, oh, that's probably not a big deal. Like anything that is going to get considered for your best picture, like they probably are going to want to do a theatrical release anyway. But then the more I thought about it and listened to other people talk about it, it there are other Oscars besides best picture. So it's like, yeah, if you want your actors or your actresses, if you want your performers to be able to be considered, you have to get that theatrical release. So, and theatrical re- releases are kind of difficult to get because um, you have to book it with like all of the individual theaters or theater chains. So it means convincing the people that run each individual theater or each individual chain to run that film for some number of showings. And there's just you know doctor strange and the multiverse of madness comes out and they want to have six of their six of their 10 screens showing it uh, all day long for the whole weekend and so it's really hard to get one of those screens to lock it in so that you can so that you can show something there yeah i'm i think it doesn't matter how big the release is I, i'll have to double check but certainly you can do at least limited releases so you don't yeah. you can release at a couple theaters in new york or whatever and then be eligible which i think is what netflix did for power of the dog i'm pretty sure power of the dog got shown in a few theaters but did not have a wide theatrical release well netflix has done this thing where they've bought some theaters that they can like Mm. (laughs) they can be like yes you're showing this one so that's part of what's going on there yeah i mean presumably you know hulu's under the disney umbrella so presumably if disney wanted to do that or if hulu wanted to convince disney to do that then that would also be (laughs) viable a lot easier for them yeah yeah you have to convince people who hold those purse strings that your movie is is worth doing it for i suppose yeah well and for disney you know they're they have films that are designed to compete for oscars and films that aren't and so that's Mm -hmm. they decide that quite ahead of time so it's not like you know, for for a movie like this, they probably looked at it and they're like, "It's not going to get Oscars. Don't worry about it." And so, it, even if it uh, became this kind of success, where it drew a lot of a lot of critical buzz, it uh, wouldn't have had the chance because they decided, you know, a year in advance that they weren't going to distribute it that way. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's that. Oh, and I should say, as part of our the reason for choosing this is. We also, next week, <laughs> spoiler for the end of the show, next week we're doing Palm Springs. And so this let us do back-to-back viewings of two, I guess I don't actually know. I assume Palm Springs is in the rom-com world, right? <laughs> yeah, it is, sort of. <laughs> okay, <yeah>. good. <laughs> yeah, so two at least rom-com adjacent movies, but also two hulu studios movies or two hulu originals 
Yes. So, which is, we always like to find stuff, you know, I don't know how many people are listening to the podcast in order and going along, but I think it's nice to have stuff that adds additional context to the stuff that we're watching. The only other thing I'd add for justification is we really wanted to get some LGBTQ films in into our, you know, into our slate. So, and this one has a lot of just basically everybody involved. Well, not everybody involved, but a lot of the people that are key players in the creation of this film are um, LGBTQ women. And a lot of them are people of color. And so that was a big draw for us to include the film, especially with things going on in the time period, which we can segue into that. But it it fits really well with what we wanted to cover for this season. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's go ahead and talk about it. So this movie came out April 29th, 2022. And as before, when we've done recent movies or recent releases, we're not going to spend too much time talking about what everyone knows about is going on now but there was there was a few things that I pulled that maybe or I guess one thing that I pulled that I actually hadn't realized it had happened but I think it does help contextualize everything and then also people are presumably going to be listening to this podcast from the future from the time vault and so nice to remind people what we're thinking about and what's on our mind as we're watching the movie. So what I had pulled that was uh, (laughs) something that happened, what, 16 days before the release of this movie, April 13th, the total number of worldwide COVID cases exceeded 500 million. So if you are listening to this in the future, if you don't remember what it was like to live through a pandemic or you didn't live through it, you were born too late, or you got lucky enough to be born after. Yeah, we're at the point now where we are, the pandemic has started to recede or has receded enough that a lot of people are going about their daily lives, not thinking about it a lot. Or, you know, I live in New York City, so a lot of the mask mandate on public transit has been lifted. But A lot of people are still wearing masks on public transit, but I am, our office schedule is what I assume it will be for forever now, or it's not going, there are not going to be more days in the office than there currently are. So that's, yeah, that's about where we are. Yeah. And for me, I'm fully back in school with no mask mandates or anything, but they only lifted the mask mandates in January, so three months before this film came out. So it's right in that weird um, liminal space of full-on pandemic and the end of the pandemic, which, you know, it's... uh, I I understand the science here that there really isn't uh, an end of the pandemic, like, looking like it's in sight at any time, and that numbers are still uh, looking bad, and there's still spikes and all of those things, but the public kind of is not reacting that way, and so the public is reacting this way, like, it's over. uh, Everybody got bored of the pandemic, and so um, that's kind of when this movie came out. Yeah, and I did not... I don't know if I missed it or I just wasn't paying attention, but I didn't feel like I was, I didn't feel like I saw places where this movie was impacted by the pandemic. I didn't feel like I saw scenes shot in a way where I was like, 
oh, they did that because of the pandemic or that there were extras who weren't there. Um, yeah. It's po- did, did, Was there any that you noticed? I didn't notice any, but they did film it in summer of 21. Um, yeah. And so, like right in the middle of in in the middle of the pandemic i guess that was right when people were starting to lift some mask mandates before they put them back into place so and it was filmed in syracuse so there had to have been some amount of mandates and things going on um and it had to have been a big part of their production but i didn't notice a lot of the film that was severely restricted by filming during the pandemic yeah and people would have been vaccinated by that point yeah so 2022 what a what a glorious time to be alive what was uh what did you pull that you wanted to talk about for right now so this one and i think it's probably the most relevant current issue to this is we're in the middle of a huge rash of anti-lgbtq bills going on throughout the United States, primarily in red states, though there are a smattering of these things kind of popping up in blue states as well. In particular, there's two very well-known cases going on, the highest profile one being the Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida, uh, and then the Texas Trans Bill. So the Don't Say Gay Bill is intended to be to prevent educators in K-12 through schools from being able to discuss gender and sexual orientation. And then this bill in in Texas is designed for child protective services to investigate families that are allowing their kids, their teenagers to, primarily teenagers, to participate in gender-confirming medical care. And so those two things are the the big bills that are that are being dealt with as this film came out and it, they were at the top of the mind for me as this as I was watching this movie and there's a bunch of them and similar copycat bills and things like that throughout the country. Yeah, and these are things that are primarily targeting high schools, not just high schools, but that's one of the places where we see some of the biggest effects and this is a high school high school rom-com you know it deals with high school relationships and so it yeah it's hard not to think about that when you're watching this movie and hard not to think about the think about it as a direct response to that even though this movie was in production before probably not before those bills were drafted but at least before they became famous and became something that we were publicly worried about right and um, I think this is just a, a, a small spoiler thing that wouldn't normally go in the, the second half, but this film doesn't really deal with that kind of stuff. Like, that's not the topic of the film. It's not addressing uh, these kind those kinds of topics, even though it is a queer uh, rom-com. But by not addressing it, it kind of is like the elephant in the room, and it is sort of a response to those kinds of things by avoiding talking about them i don't know if that makes sense yeah it does it sort of creates a um it's sort of like a fantasy world right a fantasy american high school and there's some more stuff that we'll we'll talk about that in the in the spoiler section yep 
And then the last thing that I had pulled here, and it's only tangentially related to the movie, but on April 25th, the Elon Musk's attempted coup, attempted buyout of Twitter went through. It was confirmed. And the only reason I mention that is because I think there's a very interesting dichotomy, interesting difference in this billionaire, this exceedingly rich man who wants to spend $44 billion to ensure his so-called right to free speech and his so-called right to say whatever he wants or have anyone say whatever they want on this website. And I think you look at that in direct contrast to the don't say gay bill, something that is directly limiting types of speech and the way that people can talk and legislating that, you know, what the First Amendment is supposed to actually protect, which is the government legislating speech. And so it's hard not to think of those two things as intertwined, even if they're only intertwined in the sense that it's like, oh, you know, some portion of that $44 billion would have been much better off combating free speech in a place where it actually is needed, in my opinion, is actually needed. Yeah, I mean, so much money just to so that he can say, I don't know, transphobic tweets, I think, is probably what he wants to be able to do the most. And, you know, whereas you get a film like this costs uh, $6 million. Imagine how many of these films you could produce with that kind of movie money. Um, or all kinds of other things dealing with these bills that are preventing people from being able to talk about talk about their relationships, the relationships that they're in, talk about their identities in, in a classroom. Just even the ability to mention that you are that you are in a relationship that with someone that is not of the opposite sex is extremely difficult in the educational setting now and you know it's hard to do that in these states where these laws are being passed but it's not like it's necessarily easy in a blue state i live in a blue state and it's you still live under that fear of the response that's going to happen from the from certain community members if you are to even just offhandedly mention something about your relationships in in the classroom so yeah yeah and we talked about it a little bit or maybe a lot actually on the lacage episode but the it goes past just being able to talk about your own life and having to avoid questions or play a weird game if your kids ask you if your students ask you about your own relationship it's also something that can be monumentally important to kids who are gay or who are queer or who are trans. And it's the sort of thing that can save lives. So yes, for sure. So on, on that happy note, why don't we talk about the, the personnel for this movie? And we can start off by talking about the three sort of the, the artistic creative team here, the, Ooh, I did not... Is Casey Rackham a woman? I believe so. Yes, they are. Um, Okay, yeah. All three are... Yeah, they're all three queer women. 
by talking about these three these three queer women who are it, they're all first time it's all of their first time on a feature film or mm-hmm. do we get to call it a feature film if it yes we still do right okay yeah first yeah, feature time film on is a, based on the length so okay great yeah feature film and so that's director sammy cohen and uh the two writers kirsten king and casey rackham we can't talk a ton about their credits because it's their first movie but yeah it's all queer women and i think that's something that shows through in this movie you know it was clearly very important to them to the production team to have women and to have queer women attached to this movie yeah it looks like there's not a lot of details on behind the production of this film and all those kinds of things but it seems like what kind of happened here is the production team in particular uh in particular natasha leon and maya rudolph wanted to finance this kind of film and so they found these people to put them together and they were trying to lift up queer women in particular and give them a platform to to make things uh, all of these folks have credits in different small things here and there uh, but this is their first feature for each of them and you know for, for a freshman effort uh, I think they did a pretty good job so good for them I think overall it's probably been successful enough you know for them to probably land something else afterwards yeah and oh so th- we did want to talk about what or we mentioned briefly before the hulu originals so hulu originals are relatively young they have a lot of documentaries and they've been doing documentaries and since 2017 but this is only their 21st movie and they started those in 2019 but they in both 2020 and 21 they did seven in those years and they have 11 of them coming out this year or planned to come out who knows if there are are more coming so they've really been trying to move into this space and there's several on several on their list that are on my to watch list and i suppose one that we are gonna watch next week or i'll watch (laughs) over the next couple days so yeah it's uh looking through this list a lot of them that i've seen there's some of them that I have uh, either watched or are on my list to watch, um, and they look quite good. Uh, but there's a lot of them that, seeing the trailers and seeing the discussion around them, they seem. It seems like a little bit of it is just trying to pump out content, and that Hulu is just trying to buy a bunch of things uh, that are a little bit niche and maybe don't have the same level of production quality, maybe as some other films might be i don't want to call call them like b movies or anything because i don't think it's quite the same dynamic there and i think it's great for all these people making their films and putting them out but it doesn't seem like hulu is aiming for the same kind of cultural impact as a studio like a24 for example yes i would say that is true a24 is doing a little bit of a different thing though so i think they're i think they could be aiming for something at least adjacent to that realm it's just like what you can get and what you're able to do mm-hmm. you know a24 doesn't also have to run a streaming service and right. it, it's just a very different business model so i wouldn't be surprised if that's something that they want to do or at least get closer to doing it's just you have to have 
the capital to be able to acquire and pick up the stuff that that you want to pick up for sure it to me it seems like mostly what they're doing is they're trying to patch up holes in their catalog Mm -hmm. for different uh, audiences so they're saying we we want something for this audience and for that audience and trying to get things that fit fit into those categories yeah and they did get co-distribution on summer of soul which we will talk about later this season which did win an oscar so yes not full distribution and doesn't show up in their documentary list but certainly having it there does not doesn't hurt for sure let's talk a little bit about the the two leading ladies in this movie so the first one that i wanted to talk about is ali e cravalho and yeah i there's a very cute video of her explaining how to pronounce her name with the rock i'll i'll drop it in the show notes so it's it's I, very it's very sweet um yeah I, I hope i didn't didn't butcher it and i i was really excited to see her in this movie of course ali is in my fourth or does voice acting for my fourth favorite movie of all time which is moana and i think she is really really excellent in that movie she is hawaiian and i that she's talked a little bit about you know like people have asked her like do you get sick of people calling you moana and do you get sick of being associated with this movie she had done it when she was 16 and she said you know (laughs) she's still in her early 20s so this answer still could change but at least for now she said no that movie is really important to me and i love what it has done for Hawaii and, you know, the way it's made people view Hawaiian culture and it it makes me exceedingly happy. And it made me exceedingly happy to see her in this movie and she's, she identifies as bi and her character identifies as bi. Um, She came out in a, I think it was a TikTok a couple years ago and it's a very cute TikTok. I will post it in the show notes if, if I can find it to post and yeah, I think it's nice to have her. Doesn't have a ton of other credits besides this. She had done 10 episodes of Rise, which is a TV show I have not seen. And then also a movie altogether now, which I have not seen. So yeah, I've, I've loved her in everything that I've seen her in. And she's so good and so good in Moana. Uh, and I, I think she does a great job in this film as well. Yeah. And yeah, I just uh, one of the things that I love about Ali is she... You know, she came out after doing Moana, but she's really used her platform to be a to be an advocate for LGBTQ people, you know, as as she is bisexual and she talks about she talks about that and she is the kind of person that's willing to hold Disney in particular to the fire, uh, their feet to the fire on these kinds of issues surrounding the don't say gay bills. She has been quite outspoken in wanting Disney in particular to show their support for LGBTQ people and being the the face of, you know, one of their more popular properties in the past, in the past few years, I think is she's using her platform well. And I am excited to see where she goes with her career from here going forward. And I, I think she was, she's been great so far. Yeah, absolutely. And then I also wanted to talk about Rowan Blanchard, or don't have to talk about her a ton. Rowan also identifies as queer and was had gotten famous for doing, I think, four seasons of 
Girl Meets World, and then graduated from there to start having her film career that she is now having or embarking on. So did Wrinkle in Time in 2018, I believe, and then A World Away in, I think, 2019. I did not write down the years, and then this movie. So a lot more seasoned actress just in terms of time, you know, doing four seasons of a TV show will that throws you into <laughs> into the working relationship pretty quickly or the working world pretty quickly but not not a ton of film experience. Yeah, and I think we're probably going to see Rowan Blanchard show up in a, a lot of things over the next 10 years or so. She's an actress that my students are familiar with in this way that teenagers are familiar with the teenage actors that are like the rising stars from the time period that primarily because of girl means world it's the kind of show that they watch uh and so they know who she is and they like when i said that i was watching this film and i mentioned that rowan blanchard is in it they understood who that was immediately and it's a draw for them to watch the film it's someone who gets to be their person and then they get to grow up with her and assuming her career continues which i imagine it will but yeah you know you you can't ever predict these things with 100 percent certainty mm-hmm. uh that's everyone that i wanted to talk about did you did you have people you wanted to mention here quickly um, the you know i didn't really have any other other people to mention in detail but i did also really love the performances from Isabella Ferreira and Tyler Alvarez and Tiala Dunn, the the teenage co-stars that are in this one. And I thought they were all... I thought those three in particular gave some pretty good performances. Isabella Ferreira, I thought, was just... She really came across to me as like a legit movie star. Mm-hmm. And Tyler Alvarez, I just... He had so many line deliveries in this film that... The, he made great choices in acting and so i don't know i like them i like the teenagers that were all or i guess teenagers isn't the right word for them because these folks are you know not really teens but they were teens in the film and they're young actors that i think have uh, bright futures ahead of them okay and our last category here is if we have any advice or insight for people who might be viewing this movie for the first time this is something that we like to do you know sometimes you watch a movie and there's something that it's like oh i really wish i had known x before i had watched it or i really wish that i had made sure i was in this sort of mood before i watched this movie you know just we have uh, an opportunity to try and help people out there a little bit so if there's anything we want to mention this is where we mention it do you have anything that you wanted to say here matt uh the only thing that i was gonna say is it very this film very much leans into the teen high school rom-com lane with especially a lot of humor that's has a little bit of an edge to it um Mm -hmm. it is it's rated r and you know it's not there's not like a lot of gratuitous anything in here but you know there's a lot of a lot of sexual innuendo throughout the entire thing which is perfectly fine This, this is not a complaint about those things but it's not necessarily the same as something like oh like a Love, Simon kind of film that is approaching kind of a similar idea, but in a much more 
like rated PG kind of way. This one's not really going in that direction. Lacage, which we just watched, I would have no problem saying like, yeah, you can watch this movie with your parents or parents, you can watch this movie with your kids as long as you don't mind a couple F-bombs being dropped here or there. And, you know, I don't think people can't watch this with their parents, but some people may be uncomfortable watching this movie with their parents. So yeah, that is definitely something to be aware of. If you don't want sex jokes in your movie with whoever you're watching it with, then pick a different movie for that one. Yeah, go go watch it on your own time if you're uncomfortable with that. But honestly, it's not gratuitous in any way. This film's a lot of fun to watch, and I think it's going to be... Uh, it's a good one for most audiences. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's just... It's very much geared towards teenagers, and it is... That is the target audience, and I thought that throughout the entire film. And so you just got to approach it with that kind of knowledge. Yeah, it's going to... That that was the only thing that I had to say. It's going to be a really easy watch. I don't... I imagine most people will like it. I imagine some amount of people will love it. And yeah, I I think it'll be, be a pretty easy one to turn on and have your evening or your afternoon. All right, let's take a break, and then we'll get into spoilers. All right, welcome back from the break. Welcome back from watching the movie. If you did this as intended, if you paused the podcast and went to watch the movie. Maddie, how did how did this movie hit you? You watched it twice, right? Yes. So, yeah, how did it hit you the first time? And then was there anything that surprised you the second time that you felt differently about? So I really enjoyed watching this movie, but I wouldn't classify it as one that uh, that I didn't watch it and it didn't like completely shift my paradigm or anything like that. It was Mm -hmm. just a fun teen rom-com. I wouldn't say that it was, you know, that the performances were all stellar or that the writing was incredible or anything like that it's a solid like b movie like b as in the grade a solid b grade movie but the thing that i stood out to me the most about this especially after i watched it the second time is how few of these just solid you know b grade teen rom-com movies that we have for queer people And I Mm -hmm. think it's so important for a film like this to exist. So it's this weird dichotomy where I'm so happy that this film exists. and I'm so glad we watched it and that we're covering it. But as far as like the actual quality of the film goes, it was just okay. Yeah, I think I agree. I mean, I had a great time watching this movie. I it was it went down very easy. I really did not take a lot of notes if. I have some stuff that I'm critical of or some stuff that I that took me out of it or that I want to talk about that maybe I would not have I wouldn't have even thought about it if we weren't doing it for the podcast it would have just been like yep that was a rom-com and then moved moved on with with my day. I will say that I've been watching I've watched a good amount of directorial debuts recently and a lot of times they're a lot harder to watch than this movie was. So I do think that for a directorial debut, this I thought this was really solid. I thought this was probably very good. 
which that that was something that I only thought upon retrospect. Yeah, well, and additionally, not only is it a directorial debut, it's also the debut for the writers for a feature film. Mm-hmm. And the cinematographer, this is his first feature film. He'd done a lot of music videos beforehand. but And then the, the three stars of the film, this is kind of like their first really big mm-hmm. film. And then the two it's main coming posters. Out party. Yeah, it's a, it is a first film for so many people that were involved in this one. And... From that consideration, it really is a very good freshman effort for so many people that were involved in the film. Yeah, and the unevenness or the various unevenness. I think the thing that maybe stood out to me the most as where I sort of saw that freshman effort come through is I think these actors all are really good and all of them have moments i think every single actor had moments where i was like what they just did right there is actually really difficult and they did it extremely well and particularly rowan like i think her sort of how disarming she is and how charming she is really carries a lot of this movie and there are so many really nice moments that she has where she just delivers the line perfectly and her timing is perfect but then there are also a lot of moments I shouldn't say a lot there were more than a handful of moments where I was like was that really the best take of that moment like clearly there was a better line delivery to be had here from these very talented and very good actors and so I don't know if that's an editing issue I don't know if that's just like not having enough foresight when you're doing the filming to make sure you get enough takes maybe it was a COVID thing you know we meant I mentioned how I didn't bump on it coming into the movie or it could watching be just the movie. directorial choices on the day and not yeah. having other takes to do with it I think some of the issues that I saw as well were just writing issues where you know some of the lines, the way they're written, just are a little bit, a little bit ham-fisted. Again, these are kind of smaller critiques, and I, I don't want to critique the overall. The the quality is not as good as maybe you would hope from people that are very seasoned in the things that they're doing. But but there are you know little pieces here and there that could have been a lot better. Yeah, yeah. That we don't that we don't cover this in any of our scenes. And we could do it in cleanup, but I'll mention it here. The The biggest issue that I had with this movie, and I'm guessing you actually probably didn't have this issue, but the... So we talked about how this movie takes place in this fantasy world where everybody's queer and like there are just kind of no straight people except for adults in this movie. And Well, there's... The coach even mentions at one point, he's like, I know 60% of you are queer. And so, yeah. yeah, it definitely is this fantasy world that is taking place in. Yeah, so so that world's a fantasy. But then I felt like all of the character archetypes were pretty grounded, or at least the ones that were not grounded were maybe only like one or two steps exaggerated, like the coach or maybe her mother. But... The principal, I felt like, was in a completely different world from this movie, where I just, like, 
did not buy that this woman would be a principal of a school like this stuff the information that she was divulging to students and the way that she was dealing with many of the situations i'd it i we were supposed to find it funny but instead it just took me out of the movie and was like we're in a different world now <laughs> there were it felt to me like there were a lot of different like a lot of the performers were kind of in different films mm. and so in particular the adults in this film felt like they were in different films than the teenagers and the kids that were in this and for, for me most of the things that pulled me out of the film were the adults and they have I mean, the adults that they have, they're good performers, and I've seen them in other things and liked them a lot, but I just didn't feel like they were living in the same universe that the kids were, so, yeah. Oh, interesting. So you you had the same issue, but you had it with all of the adults. Yeah, in particular with Asif Manvi, um, who plays Coach Murray, and Megan Mullally, and it's not that I had any particular problems with their performances, but they just, they took me out a little bit in in their performances. And the one place where I didn't really feel this was the interactions between Megan Mullally and when she was there and also Rowan Blanchard and also Tyler were together, the three of them. I thought that mm-hmm. dynamic worked really well, but whenever it was, whenever it wasn't the three of them, I felt like it just was a little bit off. It didn't quite fit for me. Interesting. Yeah, I think I really liked Megan Mullally in this. I I thought she I thought she brought sort of a cleanness to the timing that while there as I said there were glimpses or maybe a lot of it present for all of for everyone else, for all of the teenagers, all the kids or young adults. For her I just felt like I felt like I was taken care of whenever she was on screen. I felt like she had all of her marks. She delivered everything perfectly. Like, I don't know. It, it, it felt, she felt right to me. I definitely understand your issue with Asif Manvi and the principal, as I said, was, was much, much, much worse for me. Yeah, it's a, well, I, I felt like the dynamic between Asif Manvi and Megan Mullally just did not work for me at all. Yeah, I, I get and that. And so that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that it particularly worked for me either. But it also didn't like super bug me, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I wasn't really bugged that much by it, by it either. It's just one of the few things that kind of pulled me out a little bit, and I'm like, yeah, whatever, just wave it off. Yeah. Though I gotta say, Asif Manvi, he's plays in a series of unfortunate events. The character Montgomery Montgomery, and he is so good in that show, and <laughs> you can see like the threads of what he's bringing into this one. But I think that might be part of. Like, what was throwing me off a little bit is it felt like he was bringing a lot of his character from there into this one. And it felt like Megan Mullally was bringing a lot of her characters from other things in, you know, Will and Grace and Parks and Recreation in particular, I'm thinking of. And those Mm -hmm. are kind of not matching up very well together. And so, and then Michelle Boutiao, I saw her in Always Be My Maybe. And her performance, it felt like those three movies and those three actors were very much clashing up against each other in very different styles for all of them Mm, yeah yeah yeah. uh let's move on and talk about our our scenes here so the first scene that i wanted to talk about in typical me fashion is i wanted to 
whenever I get this experience where I get to watch a movie and I don't really know anything about it, I don't know any of the characters, I don't know anything, I love being able to talk about the the opening sequence. So I wanted to talk about the opening six and a half minutes here, which basic, I mean, two minutes of it is taken up with credit, credit scrawls, which I love credits in movies. It makes me really happy. It's really, I think it's nice to know who everyone is going in. Um, and in this case, it also does a little bit more than that. It shows you all of King Pun's art and has a bunch of these little little puns which is probably the aspect of the movie that I loved the most the just the king pin king pin king pun pun I think is really excellent and adds a lot of a lot of fun to this movie and honestly I wish the fun that we had in the in the during the opening credits where you got to see all of the puns that she had painted on all of the various places, the whatever the one was about standing up to the patriarchy, patriarchy, and there was one with a snake, and I thought all of that was really cute, and then you got to see the flip in the bird one that shows up, I think, a little bit later. It's the first king pun art that shows up, I and I wish that there had been a little bit more of that whimsy over the course of the rest of the movie, because I, I really loved that section. Yeah, and that's... I agree with that a lot, and it's a lot of... When I saw the trailer, what really attracted me to the film was this idea of whimsy that was part of that. So the trailer had a lot of this art and a very similar style to this opening of, of the film, with the credits and all of those things. Uh, so so it really set me up for, for those things. I really enjoyed the opening sequence. And I think that you and I are probably kind of rare in the regard that I, I love opening credit sequences and I love when the opening credit sequence is used to establish some amount of exposition and I don't think that's a universally beloved thing at all. I think most people r- would rather just jump right into the film, but it's something that I enjoy a lot. Ooh, yeah, it would definitely people should let us know what their feelings on are on it and i will i will pull the friend of the show my wife after after we're done <laughs> recording and see what what her opinion is cuz i yeah i guess i kind of always assumed i i had no assumption i i had no feelings so but i am curious what other people think about it the because this king pun art is so distinctive i couldn't help but compare it to Mitchell's versus the machines which I know is mm-hmm. a movie that we both watched in the past year and really loved which is also a movie that is dealing with identity and has a queer protagonist or bi protagonist I think it's not right? clear yeah it does not it's it, not clear it doesn't Got clearly it. identify what identity in the LGBTQ realm but you know it's a, a similar kind of theme going on here. And that movie takes her art style, takes the protagonist's art style, and lets it infuse the entire movie. Whereas this movie, I felt like, only went like 33% of the way there. Yeah. In terms of having her our protagonist's art style infuse the rest of the movie. But so 
the next four minutes really sets everything up. When I rewatched it, I was pretty amazed at how quickly it establishes everything. So it establishes the what she needs to do. You know, it has her lying on her bed with her laptop and she reads the prompt for what school is she trying to go to? CalArts? Yes. I think yeah, so. Trying to go to CalArts where she has to draw a picture of her of her happiest moment and then through this framing device it shows us a couple different options for her happiest moment when she comes out to her mom. So there we go. We get to introduce her mom. We also get to introduce the fact that she's a lesbian, the fact that she is gay, just in case you didn't know it already from the trailer or however you ended up at this movie. And it also lets us introduce her best friend who, and it establishes that he is straight because she says, I like girls. And he says, I like girls too. And then they share a (laughs) Dorito or a Cheeto, which I thought was very, very cute. And it's, oh, and it also introduces the the love interest and then Isabella, the the fake love interest, the the faux love interest. So it really gets all of the characters in here in really quick fashion and a way that I found pretty compelling. Yeah, I, I thought that as well. And additionally, it establishes the world of the story really well. So introduces each of these characters. You understand the major players. You also understand King Pun and the way that it's going to tie in, even though it doesn't mm-hmm. uh, show us Ali Carvalho until kind of uh, later on. But the other thing it establishes is that we're in a world where, like, there's not homophobia. You know, mm-hmm. the yeah. the reactions whenever whenever she comes out is everybody's like, oh, that's nice, and then they like go on with their stuff, and they're just great great reactions, always supporting, but also like not in a world where that's where this is not a coming out movie, and it clearly establishes those rules early on that nobody in this film is going to be struggling with coming out of their identity. It's going to be just a typical kind of uh, rom com or teen rom-com the other thing that i really loved is the way that it hits all these benchmarks for teen rom-coms it's got you know the she's trying to get into college and she's trying to do this like essay and it's an art essay in particular but it's a particular kind of framing that's used in these teen rom-coms continually also the this love interest that's like you know enemies to uh, enemies to friends or enemies to love interest dynamic that's established in so many different team teen round cons and this idea of like you don't know who that person is that's it, it's just like the most pervasive trope throughout all of teen rom-coms um especially in things like oh what's that classic one can't buy me love or uh all of those kinds of films and so it's very exciting that that you're seeing this kind of dynamic and it clearly establishes we're doing the typical teen rom-com we're going to hit all the normal beats but it's going to be with a queer woman instead of whoever else might normally be the star of the show yeah and one of the i didn't notice it on my first watch but when i was re-watching the scene i definitely bumped on this i think in an effort not to have to do your typical like voiceover to get us into the issue the fact that you see her reading this prompt and getting upset about what the prompt is mm-hmm. was 
I think it's a little bit sloppy and I didn't notice how it related to time on my first watch, but it is clearly the same day. Like it's all in the same day. And I do find it a little unbelievable that like her friend knew about this prompt already. So I don't understand how all of that happens. Like if she's reading the prompt for the first time and getting exasperated about it, how does everyone already know about it? And I think there is probably a cleaner way to get through that. But it wasn't something I noticed on my first watch, so I think it's probably okay. Yeah, it's... I saw this part, and I... It really brought to mind... Oh, was it She's All That that does this exact same framing device? You probably haven't seen that one, but there's... Yeah, you are asking the wrong person. Yeah, but I think that she's... the People in the, in the comments... Listen, there's so many teen movies that use this, that use this, like, start to the rom-com is the, the essay to apply for college. And there's a couple of them that basically do the exact same thing. They're, like, reading the prompt and thinking about it in response to the prompt, and then the movie kind of deals with that. So it felt mm-hmm. like they were evoking those things, and it's basically a callback. Uh, so I, I didn't notice the, like, the, what what do we call it? Inconsistency. The inconsistencies, because I was just thinking about those connections. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to say about this, this intro, this opening? That's all I've got for this. Okay, the next scene is also mine, which is, this is the party scene where Rowan goes to the party because she is trying to catch King Pun and... It's her first her her first high school party, and she's gonna get led through it, and then she eventually hooks up with Ali for to try and interrogate all of the drunk students to figure out who who King Pun is. Yeah, and there there was a lot I really liked about this scene. It does have some of the most. I don't know if you noticed this, but it does have a couple of the most interesting shots of the movie, cinematography-wise. And both of them are tracking the... Ooh, I didn't even go to any parties, so I don't even know what they're called. But the pipes that people are drinking the beer out of. I can't uh, remember the scene well. I think maybe beer, maybe beer, beer bongs? I don't know. We we need we need we needed a guest for this episode, but there's there's one scene. So they at the top of the scene, someone throws a beer up to, like the walkway around, and the mm-hmm. camera jumps up there. So that's not part of the shot. But then, it they pour the beer into the funnel, and then it goes down the tube, and the camera tracks down the tube. I don't remember this shot at all. Into, yeah. yeah, into someone drinking it. But that's not the whole shot, because then it picks up, picks our protagonist up walking through the party or entering the party. It's a really cool oh, shot. Cool. Yeah. And I th- it's like one of the only tracking shots that I remember from the movie. But the other one is they track another beer bong that is going down someone's stomach so, <laughs> so <weird. laughs> yeah it's, it's kind of funny yeah i don't know if there's some sort of like inside joke there yeah, or not but on rewatch i was also pretty impressed with ali's acting here when the when it's brought up that she might be king pun and this was i don't know if i was just dumb but i did not figure this out i had not 
guessed this on my initial watch of the movie. And I thought she did a really good job of, of acting here where she was playing silent. And if you knew, you could see that she knew. But if you didn't know, at least I didn't know. Huh. Interesting. I mean, I as soon as she showed up, I was like, she's king fun. Um, so, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, I was... I was that was not a mystery for me for basically the entire film. I, I don't know. I don't know why. I just pegged it. I was like, she's she's the one. And it might just be because of I've seen so many of these teen rom coms that the structure I just was able to identify it so easily. But it also didn't matter to me. I didn't you know, whatever. It's a it's the structure of the film and she really does do a good performance here of trying to you know, like play like she doesn't know what uh, what Paige is talking about, and I yeah, I thought her performance here was very good. Yeah, and I also really like it. It does have the funny scene where her two friends who are competing for class president. I do love the running gag through this movie, where she's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna win," and everyone was like, "Yeah, she's gonna win." And he's like, "I don't know, maybe I could win." <laughs> And it's great. eventually when she does win, he just doesn't care at all. You know, he's like, yeah. um, I, I, I thought it was a very nice subversion of what, what would normally go on here. And it was also really nice that he was so close with another girl, with another young woman, and his girlfriend didn't care at all. It was yeah. just like, yeah, this is this is our friend group and we're cool with it and there's no problem. And that was really great. Yeah, for sure. And it, there's other things like that in this party that I thought I was really nervous coming into the party scene because in general, in teen rom-coms, the party scene tends to be the part that I hate the most because it tends to be the most problematic part of the film. There's mm-hmm. so, you know, there's just so much that deals with, um, you know, non-consensual sexual encounters or escapades and so many i don't know so many really problematic things that pop up in teen rom-coms during these scenes and i thought that they handled and navigated those things really well in this scene so i liked that part of it a lot are you are you forgetting them forcing alexandria ocasio-cortez to watch them have sex okay that (laughs) Uh, yeah, I mean, that part killed me. I, it was, it was, that was, um, very interesting. And I did find it fascinating as well that, uh, what are they, Dylan and Stacy, like, you know, mm-hmm. the running gag of them just, like, constantly trying to make out or have sex or do whatever throughout the entire film. Like, that's all that they were doing. I after some amount of time, I was like, okay, I get the gag. Like, uh, mm-hmm. don't need to see this again. But at the same time, as a high school teacher, it rang very true for me. Um, of all the times, you know, listen, you walk through the hallways at the school and you just try to you try to keep focused, your eyes straight in front of you. Because you, you just don't want to catch a glimpse of something you don't want to be seeing. And these kids have very, uh, they have a very, very poor concept of like the boundaries of uh, where public displays of affection are appropriate. Uh, so that part rang very true for me of those characters. <laughs> it felt real. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, 
I don't have the history that you have with these party scenes, so I didn't realize it, but I would, like, they do have a line when they're closing the door about how inappropriate it is for them to make AOC watch them do this. And I would bet that probably was a direct call out to this uncomfortableness that you normally feel mm-hmm. yeah. in it, party scenes. It felt scenes. like it to I, me, yes. Yeah. I was a little bit uncomfortable still, and I know, like, uh, between the two of us, I've consumed a lot more alcohol, but I'm still a little bit, uh, I don't think it's okay to like joke about trying to get people drunker than they want to be. And there were a couple jokes about that in this scene, which I understand is like normal. Uh, you know, I've had to deal with it as someone who doesn't routinely get drunk, hasn't really been drunk. It's something that a lot of people over the court, particularly in high school and college, were very interested in getting me drunk and seeing me drunk. And I don't think that's like an okay thing that is funny, but uh, that's, that's a minor quibble here. Yeah. And I, this is, this is one of the reasons why I have such issues with party scenes in, in these teen rom-coms. And I know that the, the party scene, I know that it, it, that it rings true for a lot of people of their experiences of going to these kinds of parties and people trying to get them drunk. I just think it's not a thing to be celebrated about it and, or to treat, be treated so casually. Um, but you know, that's a, this is a criticism. That's a criticism of the genre and the conventions of the genre as a whole, um, rather than of this film specifically, because I, I don't think this film stands out compared to these those other films in that way and actually treats it a little bit more sensitively than maybe some of these other ones do. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, and I do think they tracked because... What, what are her friends? Dylan and Stacy? Yes. Yeah, because they leave the party to go do their own thing so quickly, I'm pretty sure they did track how much alcohol they were consuming, which I think was none. And so when, because he drives her home, right? Or does he say, we'll order you a car? I can't remember. Either way, they're tracking it to make sure that what happens for transportation home is safe. Yes. Which is uh, good. Don't, Don't drink and drive. Yeah, for sure. What, how did you feel this, in terms of our journey for Paige and AJ... Did you feel like this scene did its job? I don't in know. In terms of... I don't know. Like, it's... As I said, I I just knew who who King Fun was as soon as we... Uh, before we even got to this scene. So none of that threw me off. And um, I could see that they were planting seeds with these other characters. That they were going to be the red herrings that was going to be then throw us off and come back into the story in some way later later on with uh i can't remember all the characters names but the the one kid that's in renaissance club and the horse Mm -hmm. girl and the and the witch so is all of those characters i kind of could see that the way they were setting them up as red herrings that would then pay them off in the story later on so structurally, I don't think that it's necessarily like that it didn't work, um, but it's not like this scene really cemented for me the the relationship. I don't know if that makes sense. No, yeah, and that was exactly my thought. Was I didn't 
especially on rewatch, I still didn't feel very much spark or very much chemistry between our eventual couple here. And I couldn't, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, because I think that spark is there in the next scene, which we're going to talk about. And so I wasn't 100% sure. I could see it both ways. I could see the argument that like, yeah, we were just laying the groundwork here and we didn't really want you to feel anything yet. We just wanted to make sure that we had interactions. But I also could see the argument that mm, it actually would have made the transition a little smoother if there had just been a little bit more of a spark here. A little bit more... Because I, I was still pretty reticent of, like, wanting the two of them to get together. It wasn't... I was like, I don't know if this movie's going to get me there after this scene yeah yeah for sure and uh what it also didn't do so it it didn't really establish the attraction to each other super well in this one but it also didn't establish the uh what what's the word that like the anti-attraction i don't know Mm, how to describe that like it didn't establish them as like oh look at how much you know they don't get along or anything like that in this one they just kind of seemed chill as friends together and i don't know i don't know that that's a criticism of the film but it definitely is not uh the way a rom-com is normally structured which would do one of those two paths but that's you know but overall i did see how they were laying or planting the seeds for those other characters that were going to be popping up later yeah i guess it's because this idea of aj having long-term unrequited love is like pretty not standard and so that's like a weird journey to take rather than the two of them like discovering that they are actually into each other at some point uh let's move on and talk about the next scene which is which is yours yeah so this is the scene it's after this party and you know Paige gets Paige gets sentenced um she gets put into the situation where, in order to not get suspended, she has to participate in track. As she says, she's going to play track. <laughs> and <laughs> so then she ends up with with AJ being, like, her... What would you call it? Mentor? Like her mentor? Yeah, her mentor. Her, like, coach sort of sort of in uh, preparing for track and practicing together. Uh, And this is what I really liked about this scene. You have a bunch of like a little montage uh, of them doing different practices and different workouts and things like that. And you also have where she shows up to practice and, you know, they have a little bit of witty banter back and forth and they talk, uh, talk to each other and then they see the art and they, they get to know each other a little bit better and so this scene really did work for me, and mm-hmm. I thought that the the chemistry between the two of them worked out pretty well as as this scene was developing, and it felt so different from a lot of the other scenes in the film because if it just felt it felt really more real and grounded to me, yeah, and a lot more natural in in the development of those two characters. I also really I think this is the scene that had the dialogue where she was like we're gonna run three miles and then she's like oh that's 0.296 miles more than i was promised and then she's (laughs) like yeah i think you got confused with the metric system and i thought that i thought their performances there were great and that dialogue was really good one of the 
pieces of dialogue that surprised me the most in the movie surprised me in a good way where i was like chuckling along with them yeah uh well i i also love where she shows up with like just coffee uh for mm-hmm. to go running and <laughs> i don't know it's those kind of things i really enjoyed yeah and then they did have the nice there there's a couple different ways that they nicely showed the passage of time in this movie and one of them was they go off to run and then they zoom in on the uh iced coffee cup and show it melting Mm -hmm. which i i don't know maybe that isn't for everyone but i thought it was clever and better than just having a cut or showing the sun moving or whatever yes it's a it's a nice little a nice little cinema technique there yeah and then you also have so you get to see this moment of connection between them where um, she critiques her art a little bit, which is kind of funny. But then you get the really nice little mini scene where she's trying to teach her how to skateboard, mm-hmm. which kind of would be nice if that had come back or had paid off in some other way. Yeah. But then she finds the King Pun's notebook. And... and this is another spot where this moment where they're skateboarding together... Like, I don't know how many teen rom-coms I've had where the moment where the characters, like, fall in love with each other is one person teaching the other one how to skateboard specifically. But it's a lot. Oh, it, it's common. Yeah, it's a very common trope. Because, it's like, <laughs> you get on the straight uh, on the skateboard and then you're, like, trying to balance and then you're, like, in each other's arms and you're like, ah, you know, um, and falling in love a little little bit. And it's, it's such a common trope that shows up. I wonder if they included it just as a callback to all of these things. But this is really where, at this point, I started thinking particularly about an essay that I had read by Leo Brody uh, talking about the conventions of connection. Uh, And so I started thinking about and comparing this film in the context of all these other things and the way it's just taking this very traditional teen rom-com and taking all those tropes. But the only thing it's really changing about it is the gender and sexuality of of the protagonists. And so, so I really appreciated that. And I noticed that in the skateboarding scene in particular, because I was thinking of all those other ones that I've seen. Mm-hmm. I don't have anything else to say about this scene, do you? That, that's all I've got for this one. All right, let's talk about our last scene, which is also yours. Our last scene, um, typically in the rom-com, this is the run to the airport scene. So in this, in this case, they're not running to the airport, but they are running to the high school auditorium. And you have AJ, who has, who has confessed to being Kingpun in order to save Paige from being suspended. And then, you know, they have, like, this kind of falling out because of the miscommunication of, you know, the, the crush and all of these different kinds of things. And in order to say sorry, they do a little bit of duplicity to get AJ down to the auditorium where Paige is able to reveal that she has done this massive mural depicting basically her falling in love with AJ as her happiest moment. They, additionally, on top of this, they are revealing the results of the election, and they have all the students in there to see this. And they're able to, you know, kind of confess their love for each other, and you have this moment there at the end of the film. Uh, I don't know what other things I should uh, include. There's a lot going on in this scene. Yeah, there's this weird section where... Sorry, what's her friend's name? Dylan and... Stacy. 
Who? Stacy, yeah. Where Stacy is giving her acceptance speech, but then she's just like, turns it over to Paige. Yeah. And then Paige comes out and really looks like a serial killer, which is very strange yeah, and does. kind of out of character to be to be honest at least how how she looked in that moment but then yeah she gives gives that little speech i did want to mention there was a moment that i thought was so perfect here which is where she's just totally bombing up there and it cuts to dylan and stacy and they're like oh no this is terrible and then it cuts to Paige, and Paige looks at them and the timing is so perfect and they just like give two thumbs up and yeah. smile at her encouragingly and it was yeah straight out of straight out of a, a farce it was perfect comedic timing I, I really loved that moment that really was good yeah and her speech is so bad it really is like um it is really yeah. bad yeah yeah, it it it's it was bad enough that I felt the movie manipulating me a little bit. Like, yeah, I know you're trying to make me think this is going bad, and then it's going to be saved. And it it was a little like, yeah, she put She's so much so effort cringy. into this. Yeah. She would have written this down, you know, like right. she would. They would have vetted what she was going to say better or than this. thought about it at all. Um, yeah. it, she she really nails the performance of the cring- cringiness here. Like I felt awkward for her, but I agree with what you're saying is that you can see the the hand of the movie a little bit in place because um, because it's the cringiness and the awkwardness is so extreme, but it does create some good comedic moments there. Yeah, I have no performance issues here. Just script and and plotting the oh a good way to get rid of the is the guy being creepy or romantic in this rom-com is just to get rid of the guy so that works really well yeah for sure yeah (laughs) that's that's a great solve though you do have the coach you have a few moments of is that creepy or romantic but you know which with coach murray and and Paige's mom, Angie, you have you have a little bit of that dynamic still, but uh, yeah, that didn't bother me a ton because she was the aggressive one. Yes, and rather she's than... and they're both clearly like consenting to the way their the the relationship is developing. But there are a few moments that you're like, mm, that's uh, the the uh, in particular the openness with which he uh, dis- or with which they discuss this with the with the kids. And I, yeah. it's not even, like, the mom with... It's the coach. Like, it's so weird to, like, know anything about your your coaches, like, trying to hit on your mom. Uh, that's, a, yeah. that's a very awkward kind of situation. Yeah, and they definitely can't go record themselves having sex in the school, you know? <laughs> yeah, that is not a good idea. <laughs> that's a really good way to lose your job. Yeah, and get arrested, probably. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. both of those things. Yeah. Uh not not endorsed by Streamit. Not yeah, definitely not. Don't do that. I do think this is also a pretty good example of the writing for the principal not working for me because when Stacy starts her speech, you get that moment of her backstage where she says, "I voted for you, bitch," and she's clearly upset at what's unraveling, but then with no transition moment afterwards she's fully in support of this idea and so it just felt like i was like we're we're missing a moment here or you just don't have have that funny 
funny in quotations line about her voting for her so yeah i mean that threw me off because also um faculty doesn't vote in student elections so that was weird right yeah, yeah. well i i figured that was true and then i was trying to figure out like is this saying something about this school and then i stopped thinking about it so. <laughs> that's probably for the best yeah yeah I don't have anything else to say about this scene. We can move towards towards cleanup here. Yeah, let's go into cleanup. Uh, why don't you go first? I'll look at my notes and see if I have anything we don't we didn't cover. Already. Yeah, I don't have a ton of things to cover. Let's see. the The one thing that I wanted to make sure to talk about was this this essay genre of the conventions of connection. Uh, everybody should go check that out. Uh, it's a very good essay, and it's about this kind of like idea of so often we're judging things by the standard of how novel or unique they are, how much they have new ideas that haven't been seen. This film is not doing that at all. He talks about in the essay of looking at films in a little bit different way through the way that they are taking the connections with other things and then building on them and developing different uh, different aspects of the genre and of the form and creating the uh, creating new meaningful art by the way they're exploring the small changes. And I think this film is a really good example of doing that, of it's so meaningful for for LGBTQ people to be able to watch this kind of teen rom-com, but it's made for them. And I mm-hmm. think that's an important thing. And so that's why I'm glad that this one exists. And then I do have one other cleanup thing to mention. And this is an overall idea here from looking at stream and comparing with the birdcage that we just watched i really love that we just watched two lgbtq films that were very affirming for lgbtq uh, identity and also that didn't have any nobody died in them so yeah that was nice that's true no one did die yeah so that's nice maybe in the sequel uh i'm i mean eventually everyone does die but it was nice to have films where that wasn't Mm -hmm. the whole idea of the story yeah uh we did a pretty good job of covering everything that i wanted to cover but there is one thing that i wrote down so this is our uh what is this if you count bonus episodes this is our 28th episode of this podcast i think and then i don't know if we've mentioned it before but you and i did 60 episodes of another podcast that is now no longer available because we stopped paying for the for the thing so we we've done close to 90 episodes of a podcast together and uh there is something that i have never mentioned to you (gasps) yes uh because i don't know there's never been a point but it is something that i've always noticed but in this movie you have a friend and that is at 13 minutes someone they say the word p-i-c-t-u-r-e-s Pictures. Pictures, yeah. And, yeah, pictures. But you don't pronounce it pictures. You pronounce it pitchers, like yeah, pitchers. pitchers of water or, base, uh-huh. pi- or baseball pitchers. Yeah. But someone in this movie did as well, which oh. I don't think was originalism for wherever they were filming this movie. But I did think, ooh, Matt has a friend here. <laughs> Look at that. You know, that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. Uh, so one of the things that's weird about my accent is I've lived over a bunch of different places in the U.S. And I have many different many different dialects and accents of American English that are all competing in my vocabulary. So I don't know. It's, it's very weird. Uh, pictures like that is probably a Utah thing. I would, uh, I would assume 
Uh, I think so, yeah. yeah. So, makes sense. It's kind of fun. It always makes me think of baseball. Always distracts me a little bit from uh, <laughs> whatever nice. we're talking about. That's great. Okay, so that will do it for this episode. Next week, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we are going to watch Palm Springs, another Hulu original. This is a movie that I have not seen, but Matt has seen, and I am pretty excited for it. I am a real I really really love Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So I am excited to see, and that's the only thing that I've seen Andy Samberg in, so I'm excited to see him in something else. And it does just kind of seem like a movie I would like, so that'll be really exciting. I think you're going to like it. Yeah. And as always, if you want to get a hold of us, you can find me on Twitter at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A, and you can find Matt at... O-R-A-M-W, O-R-A-Y-M-W. And if you want to send us longer form thoughts, you can send us an email at podcaststreamit, just those three words, podcaststreamit, at gmail.com. And as always, we do want to say thank you to David Stewart, a.k.a. Estoriel, for being our first beta listener for the podcast, but also putting in tireless work, helping us edit the podcast and making us sound better than we do IRL. So thanks a lot, David. And with that, let's do closing question. Do you have a closing question, Matt? I do have a closing question. In this film, Paige is sentenced to join track to play track in order to, you know, in order to, I don't know, keep herself from being suspended. So if we're mm-hmm. if you're going to have to fake join a sport as a punishment for something, what sport would you end up being fake joining? Oh, so one that I would like be pretty bad at. Uh, you you can choose how to answer it, however you however you want. But I figured we needed to have another opportunity to discuss sports on this podcast because you know we got to keep that keep that thread going. So yeah, that does. So I played soccer and I miss playing soccer, and obviously I love baseball. So I don't think either of those would be very good punishments. And I actually did track for a little bit so i think probably football would be the worst punishment i don't really have a very high pain tolerance and i don't really want to tackle people or get tackled so yeah yeah probably football yeah imagine american imagine you playing uh playing football and like putting on the helmet and having to get up there and like you know uh shove people it is it is an interesting interesting thing to imagine you could probably do like a wide receiver or something to get out there and catch the ball though yeah yeah it's a, but i'd still have to get tackled yeah so. that's that part's not so fun mm-hmm. yeah for for me what about you well you know i don't know it's a the the only sport that i was really good at when i was a kid was swimming i also played soccer but i was not good at it but i enjoyed doing it anyway and so you know that's a nice thing and just a quick message for everybody it's okay to do things that you're not good at and still enjoy them but I think if you were going to choose a sport that would be perfect for me to, to fake to fake play, I have vertigo, so probably something like basketball or volleyball where I have to do any mm. amount of like keeping my feet and balancing uh, can, be, can be precarious and can be a difficult situation. So volleyball would probably be one of the worst ones for me to fake join. And, you know, it, it would probably just be a disaster, a comedy of errors all the way around. 
Yeah. I told you before we started recording that my question was the level one question for this podcast. And I'm asking you what college admissions asked Paige. You know, they want to know what her happiest moment is. But I am going to take off. You're not allowed to say your wedding day or the birth of either of your children. We'll just assume that those are those are tied for the top three. And then we'll. The college admissions does not want to hear about those. Yeah, that, that is totally fair. Um, okay. I am thinking, thinking, thinking. If I were to choose my happiest moment to depict in this art form for my college admissions essay, it would have to be watching the first Lord of the Rings film in the theater. Um, Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah, it's a. It, it was just a great moment that I loved so much, and like it is one of my favorite moments that I remember. As you know, it just combined so many things that I love so much, and so that would be that would be one for me. Yeah, so I I wrote the college admissions people to see. I was like, I know I can't pick my wedding day, even though it's like one of the greatest days of my life. But can I do any of the time on my wedding weekend? And they said, no, I wasn't able to do this. So that whole weekend is disallowed. And I thought about doing when Joe Biden won the election. And I knew that, (laughs) assuming all went as planned, Donald Trump would be no longer our president. But I don't think I was all that happy that day. I think that was mostly relief. Yeah. And... So what came to mind was, and I don't even know why this comes to mind, but the, until Seattle won the Super Bowl, we had not had a major championship win in sports that people cared about. Um, The Sounders had not won. The Mariners obviously have never been to the World Series. The Sonics were ruthlessly stolen from us in 2009. They did win the championship in 1979, but I wasn't alive for that. And the Storm at that point had won two championships, but I didn't become a Storm fan until after this because uh, misogyny is rampant in the world. But... I wanted to experience a championship more than anything, and I wanted to watch my team in the Super Bowl. But the moment that stuck stuck out was in the game leading up to the Super Bowl. The Seahawks were playing the San Francisco 49ers, and Russell Wilson drove down the field and scored the go-ahead touchdown, but left too much time on the clock. And at this point, Colin Kaepernick was still in the league, but also still Colin Kaepernick. He was great. And he had, I think, about two minutes to drive down the field and score the touchdown that would keep us out of the Super Bowl. And he drives down the field, and instead Richard Sherman tips the ball and picks him off in the end zone. And I, we didn't have cable at the time, so I was at a bar watching the game, and I just remember walking home, tears in my eyes, just like so happy that we were going to get to go to the Super Bowl. And I immediately called our friends in the Adirondacks and said, hey, can we come up and watch the Super Bowl? I don't want to host a Super Bowl party and have to be stressed out about my guys. And yeah, 
that was the moment that I thought of. I love it. That's great. And it would be a great picture because you can get a picture of Richard Sherman making the tip and, you know, whatever, me yeah. walking home crying from the bar. So <laughs> It would be great. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. And yeah, sorry, that was a long answer, but that'll do it for this week. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.